Welcome to the Bok Deer Podcast. This is a stereoscopic history. The view from Germany. April 1921. Upper Silesia. Security and ethnic makeup across city and district. As related last month, the roughly two-fifths and three-fifths of Upper Silesia to be apportioned to Weimar Germany and the Second Republic of Poland respectively was no more than a prelude to further violence. There were at least three reasons for this. One, the rag-bag nature of the Sicherheit Polizei, or SIPO. This is the military arm of the German police force in contrast to the criminal arm, and the administrative oversight between these two, the Polizei Verwaltung. Two, the return either from exile or self-exile of native Silesians to take part in the plebiscite, and three, the demographics between the cities and towns on the one hand and the rural districts on the other. More than 700 small towns and villages voted to secede from Germany in contrast to the largely German Remainer vote in the bigger towns and cities. We will not have space to look at all the cities and districts, turning to each point as listed. The Sicherheit Polizei, Sipo, as first discussed in the August view, was made up of disparate elements of the Freikorps and others ready to do violence for the sake of the nationalist cause. When I say disparate, by way of analogy I mean as disparate as the many claiming German lineage in order to register to vote in the plebiscite, but that is for later. The Sipo were a security force ostensibly acting as law enforcement agents in the name of the government, but were ill-disciplined enough individually to terrorise the population they were meant to keep in order by lawful means. The Sipo, distinctive in green uniform, were little different from the so-called black and tan reinforcements to the Royal Irish Constabulary, recruited by the British government from the numbers of soldiers still unable to find gainful employment in Britain following demobilisation after the armistice of 1918. Such recruits might be described as little big men, undoubtedly brave in battle, ready to die for the empire or fatherland, but having no compunction about perpetrating the brutality of warfare in peacetime in the German case, in order to restore the preeminently militaristic, essentially Prussian, imperial German state. Both the victors in that war, Britain, and the vanquished, Germany, then were fighting Republican separatist forces bent on diminishing the landmass of their respective nations, although colonial Britain was about to expand in the Middle East. All the countries of Europe, coming out of the war, whichever side they had been on, now had huge economic problems, no less so the French. But these problems for Britain and Germany were being exacerbated by these claims of homeland separatism. Berlin was doing its best to keep its mineral-rich land and the relatively cheap labour force for it locally. The British wanted to maintain baronial landlordism in Ireland and the availability of cheap Irish labour it provided for the rest of the UK more broadly. Both 
countries were sponsoring paramilitary activity and condoning atrocity. It was the Inter-Allied Commission, tasked with the demilitarization of Germany, that saw an end to the Sicherheit Polizei by August 1921. That green uniform, to the annoyance of the French in particular, had been synonymous with Prussian militarism. Before the Sippo, there had been the Zollgrenschultz, or border guards, also in green, who had had to be withdrawn from Upper Silesia on the insistence of the same commission. The upshot was that, just as the Freikorps had bled out from the wounds of the Imperial Army, so had the Sippo come about piecemeal from the psychologically wounded Freikorps elements to be found in the Reichswehr. Freikorps service was generally a matter of nationalist fervour rather than regimental or divisional army affiliation, creating the perception on the part of the Allies, with some justification, that the Sicherheit Polizei was no more than a Trojan horse for the restoration of imperialism. Once they were disbanded following an attack in May 1920 on the Plebiscite Commission, organizing themselves in a hotel in the city of Bitom, German Beuthen, prior to the vote, these Freikorps elements drifted into the regional land police force in the process adopting a blue uniform. Not that color became unimportant, there was the purple of nobility or ecclesiastical elevation from a Catholic point of view, and politically there was the brown of fascism and the red of communism. There were no ancestral lands to be fought over, if such lands are to be defined as those passed down across more than three generations, free of claim or occupation by other principalities or provinces in the pre-nation flux between feudalism and revolution prior to 1848. The work of the Plebiscite Commission was further complicated by the ethnic makeup of the region. For centuries, much of the northernmost land on the banks of the River Oder had been tilled by German farmers working for a military class of landowners, the Margraves, once protectors of the Holy Roman Empire before the Lutheran Reformation in the first quarter of the 16th century. Diagonally across the region, around the modern-day town of Miswowitza, at the confluence of the White and Black Pshemsha rivers, tributaries to the Viswa or Vistula, there was the so-called Three Emperors' Corner, where the Russian and German empires, in addition to Austro-Hungary, all converged. It has been, at various points, German and then Russian, under imperial governance since first coming under the Holy Roman Empire, latterly the Austrian Habsburgs. By the time of the German Empire, the area had developed trade routes leading out to the Baltic Sea and beyond. Aside from the waterways, the land was tilled mostly by Polish farmers. As industry came, those in search of work from these German northeast Polish southwest regions on the Oder and the Przemysl respectively were enticed towards the mineral-rich centre of the region to work the mines. Some chose a more industrial kind of toil to escape the seasonal vagaries of agricultural labour. There was formed the industrial triangle of Katowice, Beuthen and Gleiwitz, discussed last month and in more detail last August.
The labouring classes of the Triangle shared rural lineage and a lusty agricultural physical strength that could be either German or Polish, Catholic or Protestant. As Silesia developed in the 19th century as largely a German province, generations of people local to the Triangle benefited from educational advancement as well as non-mining work opportunities. By the time of German unification in 1871, a second wave of internal migration began to take place. A number of Silesians continued in the mining industry but moved further north-westwards to the Ruhr, Many of these did not always identify as German, but saw their well-being tied up with a strong Prussian-dominated German empire. For example, the Ruhrpolen, most of whom by the time of the plebiscite had been in the Ruhr for nearly two generations. In times of economic boom, ethnic and religious tensions between communities, while never going away, tend to simmer rather than boil over. A second analogy with Ireland, the north of Ireland, can be made in connection with Belfast, the capital of what Irish Republicans refer to as the Six Counties and Loyalists as Ulster. Before 1914, the capital of the north had flourished economically as a major shipbuilding port city. It had been the birthplace of the Titanic, still regarded as a crowning achievement in shipbuilding despite the vessel's fate. In such an environment, the Catholic minority tolerated a degree of discrimination because of the relatively low unemployment levels when there seemed to be enough work for everybody. However, with the eventual collapse of British shipbuilding at Harlan and Wolfe in Belfast from the 1960s, the region lapsed into civil war, usually referred to as the Troubles, but nonetheless civil war. The German position over Silesia all along was about maintaining wartime levels of mineral extraction in its industrial triangle and so restoring pre-war industrial strength, wage levels and more or less full employment in the region for the reasons stated in the Belfast example. The plebiscite was a means to this end, that is to say, avoiding civil war in the long term. It had come about on the insistence among the allies of British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Incidentally, his position over Ireland had been to allow partition and home rule in the South. As both a political and economic liberal, he instinctively understood the necessity of maintaining Silesia's industrial capacity for the sake of European stability. He feared not doing so would engender the same hatred as found in Alsace-Lorraine between the French and German communities. He had been alarmed by the League's original intention of handing over the whole of Silesia to the Second Polish Republic. Article 88 of the Treaty of Versailles called on all inhabitants of the plebiscite district older than 20 years of age who had, quote, been expelled by the German authorities and have not retained their domicile there to participate in the plebiscite. 
Other Silesians professionally occupied outside the region who had no connection with mining or ancillary industries involved with the collieries, whether of Polish background or German lineage, were strongly encouraged to make their voices heard over the coming plebiscite. Or they were, if professing any inclination to support the fragile nation-state that was the Weimar Republic when turning up in the Upper Silesian region. In this instance, individuals were bound to find the issuing of a special plebiscite passport a relatively straightforward matter. The unseemly manipulation of the plebiscite by the German authorities, while generally difficult to pin down for the onlooker, was apparent to the Polish community, fueling further violence in the form of the Third Silesian Uprising. We will turn to this in a separate section. Despite the inter-allied commission wanting to use the results of the plebiscite to legitimize the redrawing of borders, its integrity was somewhat compromised in the city of Opel by the discrepancy between those identified as native Polish in the 1910 census and the number of votes cast for remaining part of Germany. This threw light on the sharp practices vis-à-vis the issuing of passports just discussed. The League of Nations Commission was left with no choice but to declare the vote invalid in the city of Opel, which had returned a 95% vote in favour of remaining German, while in the district there had been only a two-thirds majority on the same side. We will conclude this section by looking at the relationship between Silesian towns and their districts. Much of the land that is the conurbation of Katowice today, as was the case at the time of the plebiscite, is farmland. It still amounts to one of the biggest administrative regions in Europe. Apart from the supply of produce over the centuries, the availability of labour by the late 19th century was no longer determined by internal land migration, but by the transport infrastructure not only of the city, take Katowice, but also of its immediate environs. The Polish academic Zbigniew Reichel has analysed the patchwork nature of Polish self-identification post-Germanisation in the conurbation and found it to be less a result of civic administrative designations of territory, the kind at its worst that can lead to ghettoisation, and more a question of private upbringing and schooling at a time when much secondary education was faith-based. Where the Polish population was almost entirely Roman Catholic, there was also a significant minority of Germans of the same faith. Thus, the building and maintaining of churches and schools for Catholics generally was not about the assimilation of Polish residents, but ensuring the right to religious practice and education for Roman Catholics as a whole. Bismarck's Kulturkampf had not exactly brought Protestant and Catholic communities together congregationally, but constrained each to come together against a common threat that was the political imposition of the kind of progressivism that was at the heart of the Lutheran Reformation and was becoming more and more secular in relation to civic matters, that is, personal taxation, corporate taxation too, but also taxation in the way that money found its way from the country to bolster the funds of the Vatican. 
Religious practice itself was largely left untouched. If this was not strictly the case for schools, where the secular yet nationalistic nature of education for German-Prussian citizens was a priority, there was generally less of an inclination to interfere in extracurricular concerns on the part of the civic authorities. Faith as a private matter was only something senses were likely to capture in statistics relating to demographics. Following World War I and the practical impossibility of holding a census in Silesia in 1920, and never is a census more needed than after a period of war, the plebiscite commission in Silesia had only the local census of 1910 to work with. The view from Germany the Third Silesian Uprising. The fighting was dealt with in August. Here I want to add briefly something about the Silesian conflict as a proxy war between the British and the French and the posthumous political reputation of Wojciech Korfanty, today regarded as a great Polish state builder, yet someone who was imprisoned and then exiled by the dictatorship governing the Republic after 1930. The Upper Silesia question that was so much intended to be an assertion of self-determination on the part of the locals became a power play between the competing foreign policy initiatives of France and Britain. Paris was set on doing everything it could to denude Germany of any military strength that might in any way compromise French border security. Another initiative discussed in the view from Russia last August was the military support for the Polish in the Battle of Warsaw. Furthermore, French Prime Minister Astrid Briand, although personally more conciliatory than his president, Alexandre Milleron, maintained the relentless, unswerving demand for reparations and the inevitable deeper occupation of the Rhineland as far as the Ruhr Industrial Basin in the event of continued payment default. Paris predictably interpreted the results of the plebiscite as a vote in favour of Upper Silesia being ceded to Poland on the strength of the vote in the districts. On the other hand, Lloyd George, as hinted at in the previous section, he had demanded the plebiscite in the first place, interpreted the outcome of the ballot in favour of Germany in relation to the will of the cities and continued support for German mineral extraction and manufacturing. German imports were important for Britain and this former foe had to be robust enough to be in a position to export abroad, including to the UK. The eventual borders and the conducting of cross-border railway infrastructure were settled a year after the uprising by the German-Polish Accord on Silesia, signed in Geneva on May 15, 1922. Later, in June, on the 20th, the Weimar Republic, while retaining the westernmost tip, gave up the eastern upper region to the Silesian Voivodeship and its Siem, or Parliament, based in Katowice, formerly Katowice. Wojciech Kofanty, who had been the Polish representative on the plebiscite committee on Upper Silesia, served in this regional parliament from its inception until 1935, and on the national Siem, also from the start of the New Republic, but only for eight years, after which he fell out of favour.
His presence on both bodies was that of a Christian democrat. He opposed separatist elements within the Silesian voivodeship and championed minority rights, including those of Protestants, whenever they were in the minority locally. Despite his call for armed resistance and his military leadership in the second and especially the third uprisings, Kofanti was never a revolutionary. He was essentially a centre-right Christian democrat. Those who were given to revolution, if they had been living in the Russian Congress of Poland, were now mostly operating in Soviet Russia proper. One who had been a revolutionary but didn't care much to be reminded of it was Józef Pilsudski, who would emerge as the preeminent statesman of Poland's Second Republic. He was the new republic's chief of state from the end of hostilities in Europe in 1918 to December 1922. He had been very much a firebrand member of the Polish Socialist Party. This aspect of his past, notable for a call to arms among the workers of the Congress of Poland following the 1905 revolution in St. Petersburg, was and is generally played down. He somewhat retired from politics when he was replaced as head of state by the Republic's first president, Gabriel Naritowicz, who was assassinated after less than a week in office. Believing on becoming Prime Minister in 1926 that democracy was not a suitable form of rule for Poland and implementing something of a much less murderous curtain-raiser to the Stalin terror, Pilsudski rounded up and imprisoned Korfanty and other Democrat opponents. It is deeply ironic that it was the Polish Communist Party after 1945 that rehabilitated Korfanty's reputation. The View from Russia The poets Bloch and Gumilov The Cheka continued to round up revolutionaries and gather evidence to convict them inevitably in that order, as getting the necessary exhibits was a trifling matter once the class traitor or victim had been apprehended. Either condemning or sympathizing would depend on your color, red or white. The evidence, if necessary, can be fabricated in a number of ways. We will take two cases in which, for one, material evidence was needed not at all, while for the other there was a need for due procedure requiring artefacts, exhibits, not for a court of law, but as property of the state that, ipso facto, were proof of guilt, however uncomprehending those involved were of the true significance of said items. The doings of the Cheka on both accounts just mentioned can be illustrated by looking at the final days of two very different poets, Bloch, Alexander Alexandrovich, and Gumilyov, Nikolai Stepanovich. Bloch was indicted on the basis of what he had written glowingly in favour of, namely the October Revolution and then his minor hearsay retractions from it. I refer to his last major poem, The Twelve, 
Additionally, there was what was overheard at a memorial meeting for Pushkin, where Bloch apparently said, Peace and freedom have been taken away, and also inferences about his support for the social revolutionaries, now the enemies of the Bolsheviki. Worst of all were the whispered embellishments from pygmy communist intellectuals to earlier, more mainstream criticism of his poem, a homage to the Bolsheviki, remember. Embellishments to original criticism from more respected, non-political figures including Gumilyov, who objected to the imagery of Christ in the last part of the work. The title, The Twelve, was a clear reference to the Apostles, which was something of a window left carelessly open through which those who wanted to trash his reputation could gain access. Regardless of the work's literary merit, then or since, the toadying of literary critics in Petrograd, loyal to Sovnakom, now based in Moscow, said more about the nascent terror of one-party rule than about any post-imperial aesthetic that might be taken into consideration when critiquing a work of art. Bloch was never formally arrested by the Chekar, but his work for them as a stenographer and his manifest disillusionment took its toll on his mental as well as his physical health. Feigned indifference on the part of the security services, utter physical neglect, aided not in small part by the poet himself, and the tardiness with which a visa was issued it wasn't granted until he was too sick to be moved, all contributed to his silence and eventual death in August 1921. Gumilov, on the other hand, was imperiously indifferent to the revolution itself and scathing of the semi-literacy of those who, as he saw it, had brought it about in 1917 and were maintaining it four years later. In fact, the leading Bolsheviki were highly literate, but godless. It was this that Gumilov found hard to deal with. He moved within elitist circles and counted among his friends artists, aestheticians, intellectuals and scientists, the kind of people who were often monarchist and dilettante about their pursuits. They had not been entirely uncritical of Tsarist rule, but in their concern for the monarchy's fate and disinterest in political matters, this circle, by default, became the enemy of the state following the takeover of the levers of power by the Bolsheviki in October 1917. In 1921, long after the slaughter of the Tsar and his family, there was the Tagantsev conspiracy. Gumilov in particular, was implicated on the basis of an address book found on a Finnish spy listing the name Vladimir Tagantsev, who was a physicist and academic and part of the circle just described. Under torture, he may or may not have passed on the name of Gumilov. It cannot even be confirmed whether the two were friends or even acquaintances. Leaflets, placards and posters found in or about the vicinity of the accused may be used as evidence against them. I do not mean such items in his or her possession which would obviate the need to plant evidence or in criminal jargon fit the person under suspicion up. By such machinations, 
Gumilov fell foul of the Chekar, who arrested him on the day of Bloch's funeral and then had him shot a few weeks later. Examples of their poetry can be found at the end of the podcast. The View from America A plea for mediation from Germany Germany was desperate. The wartime allies, principally Britain and France, had been left by the US to get on with reconstructing Europe and exacting reparations or extorting them, as some might have preferred to say, and not just those in Berlin, from the Germans as best they could. However, both these principal victors were using Germany as a pawn in the messy economic business of getting the upper hand one over the other while ostensibly on peacekeeping duties in Upper Silesia. This was looked at in detail earlier. Not unreasonably, Germany wanted mediation by a third party that could never be the Council of the League of Nations because Britain and France, in terms of international diplomacy, was the League of Nations. As Frequently mentioned in The View from America, the Wilson years, those of President Wilson, the ultimate commander-in-chief who had taken America into the First World War, forging victory to his country's advantage, failed to fashion the ensuing peace in his own lofty image. But he had set the framework for peace, the League of Nations. If fully realized, with the U.S. as first among equals, it could have still brought about a kind of proto-globalization. This framework remained visible in the distance along with a residue of hope in Wilson's legacy for generations to come. After all, whatever administration may be found in the White House, of whichever stripe the governance of the USA was surely the most democratic and supported by Congress the most stable, the mere husk that was the government of the Republic of Germany in Berlin under Chancellor Ferenbach and Foreign Minister Simmons pleaded for help. In the name of the German government and the German people, the undersigned, notwithstanding the still existing technical state of war, respectfully petition the President of the United States of America to mediate the reparation question and to fix the sum to be paid by Germany to the Allied powers and eagerly urge him to secure the consent of the Allied powers to such mediation. It could be too easily forgotten that Wilson, the Democrat president, was out of office, and that the new administration under Warren Harding was made up of the other main party, democratic to its core, but only in isolation, not as a global player, a fact easily lost in wishful thinking. It was left to the Republican Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, to reply to the German plea, this government could not agree to mediate the question of reparations with a view to acting as umpire in its settlement. Impressed, however, with the seriousness of the issues involved as they affect the whole world, the government of the United States feels itself to be deeply concerned with the question of obtaining an early and just solution. The first sentence says it all. The rest is just 
diplomatic flummery. The View from America, a plea for aid from Soviet Russia. The USA would, in the coming months, receive another request, this time from Maxim Gorky in Soviet Russia, speaking semi-officially on behalf of the regime itself. Gorky was an inveterate letter-writer on humanitarian matters to Lenin, whose ear he very much had. This esteemed prose writer and playwright was known for his support of fellow writers in his correspondence with Russia's leader. He, it was, who would try to obtain a visa for Alexander Bloch, discussed in The View from Russia, when he, Bloch, could only benefit from the kind of medical treatment available abroad. Gorky was ultimately successful in getting American aid for Russia. This undoubtedly saved many lives. Thus, in purely humanitarian terms, the program was necessary, but it did not reset international relations to the mutual benefit of Russia and America. The US made it clear that succor would be extended without any political pressure being exerted either way, which dressed the whole relief operation up in the rags of a pauper holding out a begging bowl. A marginally better-fed Russia would eventually turn politically inwards under Stalin in the aftermath of this debasing experience. Russia got something out of America, Germany did not. But the indignity of having to stoop for something, in the case of the former, was no less humbling than it was for the latter in being turned down flat. Russia and Germany, as the two countries to have lost most as a result of the First World War, now became bedfellows. But before that, two related questions. 1. Would starving Russia to death have prevented Stalin from implementing his first five-year plan, so keeping Russia backwards and less of a world threat? 2. Had the US not just mediated in 1921, but extended loans so that France could get its reparation payments, would Germany have so readily restored full diplomatic relations with Russia, as well as agreeing to economic ties? There are many aspects implicit in the first of these speculations, which will no doubt be examined in later podcasts. As callous as it is to say, nevertheless, Russia had survived famine in the past with very little outside support and would again. Moreover, just as much as the new Soviet Russia wanted food, it wanted expertise and felt it could get it from the Germans. As to the second question, there is the whole matter of German hyperinflation and the Dawes plan, massive loans to service the reparations demanded of the French. All this too will be looked at in due course, and anyway has been widely covered by the history books, both general and academic. The narrower consideration here is the desperate measure, perhaps more so for Germany than for Russia, that was the signing of the Treaty of Rapallo and the reopening of their respective embassies. Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau until his resignation, the chief diplomatic representative at the Paris Peace Conference, when speaking in a meeting with the German president, Friedrich Ehrbert, on April the 21st, left no one in any doubt that Bolshevism was about world revolution. 
However, the straw he was clutching at, along with the more economically liberal-minded, was that political revolution might be fashioned into something amounting to no more than radical economic evolution. Lenin's new economic policy, a partial restoration of capital, came across as an encouragement as to this. A successfully negotiated treaty in Rapello would keep numbers up in the Reichswehr, as men could be seconded to the Russian forces. There would be fewer German servicemen in Central and Western Europe for the Allies to notice, but more in the army overall, and the Russians would get expert military training from the Germans at a level of competence not seen since the Napoleonic era. However, this military dimension to closer ties with Russia and the prospect of restoring the army, at least in part, did not appease the Freikorps. On the contrary, they were outraged as the treaty concerned the dropping of claims on either side for war damages and those over losses to shipping, as well as German claims arising over the misappropriation of private property during the war. This sparked a wave of nationalism in Germany from conservatives believing it would be an accommodation with Bolshevism. The resulting unrest led to the assassination of the main signatory to the treaty on the German side, Walter Rathenau. It is reasonable to assume that if American help had come earlier and loans extended to both service debt and boost GDP, risking mere rampant inflation instead of hyperinflation, the limitations of the Treaty of Rapallo as an alternative means to economic recovery would have been more apparent. Excerpts from Blocks the Twelve, 1918, and Gumilov's The Quiver, 1916. Both writers started out as symbolists following in the footsteps of French poets Baudelaire and Mallarmé. Bloch more consistently remained so, while Gumilov moved towards something he and Sergei Gorodetsky proclaimed as acmeist poetry in which metaphor was used more straightforwardly without recourse to esoteric allusion as we shall hear. In his last major work, Bloch attenuated his symbolism somewhat by resorting to more demotic language or slang. In translation, I have paid more attention to this than to metre or cadence. Here is the third verse of the third section of the Twelve, Vyernatset in Russian, and then in English. Nikak ni paimyot stor znachit, na stor takoe plakat, takoe agromni loskut, skolkabi vishle patyanok dlauribiat, avsiaki razdiet razut. From building to building a length of rope runs as thread for a banner, all power to the constituent assembly. Some old dear tears herself apart over this banner. She just don't get what it means. Why such a banner from such a lengthy strip of cloth? 
enough there to wrap the feet of our lads going shoeless or nearly shoeless. Gumilov's poetry became, as demanded by the principles of acmeism, more lucid and formal. A poem written during his time fighting in the First World War with the Tsarist army reminds the reader of Wilfred Owen in its use of assonance as well as rustic imagery. Here I have tried to be as faithful as possible to the rhyme in this poem, Kolchan, the Quiver. We will hear the first three stanzas of the second section entitled War. Kaksabaka na tsepite joloi, tiafkayet zalesem pulimyot, i zhuzhat shrapneli slovna pecholi, saberaya yaka krasnimyod. A urav dali kakbutu penye, trudni jen a konchivshik schnitzo, skajish et a minaya selenia, vsami blagoshni izvichirov, i vaistnu svietlo esviata, dela vilichavaya voini, serefimu jasni e krilati, zaplechami voinov vidni. Like a dog on a heavy lead, a maxima yaps behind the wooded sector, a shrapnel buzzes around like bees, after honey from crimson nectar, then hooray rings out beyond as singing, after a hard day for toiling reapers. Let's just say, what a peaceful setting is this, the most blissful of dusks for evening duties. In God's light, true and sacred, amid this all-consuming struggle, Sephirim, clear and winged, touch the shoulders of men after battle. <laughs> 